Welcome to the Ortho Joe Show, a joint production of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery and Ortho Evidence. In our world, orthopedic research is king, and current topics from our respective publications are analyzed weekly. Here is Mohit Bandari from Ortho Evidence and Mark Swinkowski from the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. Well, good morning, Mo. Morning. Uh, it, it's early here in Minnesota. Uh, we had a great episode yesterday. We were talking about a tire, and because I'm a fossil, uh, I'm back in my JBJS tie, a creature of habit and uh, lack of uh, ability to evolve intellectually. So, and I see you're in your comfortable shirt. It's, yeah, nice uh, shirt, button-down <laughs> collared shirt, no tie. No tie, but it's, it, there's nothing wrong with that, right? There's nothing no, wrong with wearing a tie. No, we, right? we, <laughs> I had my horizons expanded and, and learned that the the code for uh, presenting oneself uh, professionally is is ever evolving, but we do need to be aware of it. So for those of you who haven't listened to that episode, uh, check it out. Uh, I think you'll find it uh, interesting to say the least. Um, so I also have, of course, and I know you're traveling, so you probably, you, yeah, you're just, uh, but I, uh, I really, uh, needed my cup of Joe this morning, uh, having done a, uh, Peloton ride at uh, about nine 30 at night. Oh, and, and I got, uh, I got beat up by Allie love for those Peloton riders out in the audience. She, <laughs> she really whacked me. So we're going to talk about, uh, what caught our eye in the most recent publications or, fairly recent publications in OE and JVJS. And um, uh, I, I'm going to go first, if that's okay with you. Sure. Uh, so the one I selected uh, is uh, the lead article in the July 20th edition. Uh, and it's uh, the effect of uh, supplemental perioperative oxygen uh, on uh, surgical site infection among adults with lower extremity fractures. And let me start out with a full disclosure. Uh, this is from the Metric Consortium, uh, which has been in place for well over a decade, a wonderful uh, international group involving military treatment facilities and trauma centers uh, in the U.S. Uh, and uh, I believe in uh, North America. And uh, I chair the Data Safety Monitoring Board for the Metric Consortium. So I am aware of some of the details of this uh, particular um, uh, randomized control trial, uh, but because I have that conflict, I did not manage this through the peer review process, so, someone else in the editorial board. Nevertheless, I thought that I wanted to talk with you about it because this, this I mean, you and I are always uh, advocates of large, simple trials. This is a large trial that ain't simple, right? Because the two treatment groups were 80% FiO2, and this is patients who had uh, tibial plateaus, uh, calcaneus fractures, tibial pilon fractures between the age of 18 and 80 years, 1,231 patients. Uh, and as, as is very common with the metric group because of their high quality, they followed 94% through the 180 or six months follow-up to determine surgical site infection. And this whole question got started, I believe, from the general surgery literature which uh, had identified that higher FiO2 uh, resulted in a lower surgical site infection group for abdominal surgery and, and maybe might be thoracic surgery too. But anyway, a very difficult trial to do because you're involving uh, practitioners outside of your 
group of interested investigators, meaning the anesthesiologists and the CRNAs who are managing these patients. And um, I just uh, laud this group for being able to work through their participating centers and provide constant feedback about the ability to document what was actually being administered to the patients because you know this is not standard of care you're you're trying to do an intervention which requires a different practice and the degree of difficulty uh very very high for a study like this but let me just briefly summarize the the um the findings uh and uh so uh surgical site infection occurred in 7% of the patients at the high FiO2 group uh, and in 10.7% of the patients in the control group with uh, uh, a confidence interval of 0.5 to 0.96 and risk reduction of minus 3.8. Um, and that was in the early follow-up uh, and then in the later follow-up, similar effect at 90 days. So they did find that this higher FiO2 resulted in a lower infection rate for these uh, surgeries, primarily, uh, uh, well, all closed uh, fractures, um, but the, the, the effect was, uh, was not super high. It, there is an effect, statistically significant, but not super high. So they conclude that the findings support the use of this intervention, but should we be trying to do these kind of trials that require changing practice what what is your general thoughts with your decades of experience in running trials? Yeah, well, first, yeah, first of all, Mark, I would say that you know, I fully agree that the Metro Group is a, a long-standing consortium uh, of committed investigators, and you know, so I agree, fully supportive of the work mm -hmm. they're doing. What makes this particular study, um, you know, particularly interesting and helpful is it's large, right? And, yeah. you know, Salim Yusuf back in the day and Richard Pito said a large, simple trial is usually a trial over a thousand patients. And why do we care so much about some number, you know, a thousand? Is because when you get 500 patients in an arm, you're probably approaching a better balance than our typical randomized trials of, let's say, 80 or 90 patients, where yeah. you don't think the patients would be balanced across all the things, you know, so we can probably make an assertion that patients were probably pretty balanced and that the effect that we're seeing is probably a real effect and a 30% or so, you know, reduction in risk of uh, uh, getting an infection is pretty impressive to me. Like that's an impressive uh, number because not too many things get you that. What makes this even more impressive to your point and not to reiterate everything you've just said, but in short, getting, uh, I mean, big solutions are going to come from interdisciplinary uh, interactions. The, the yeah. truth is not, you know, no one subspecialty is sufficiently siloed that the care yeah. of patients, especially of complex programs, doesn't require other interventions. And you and I have been saying this for hip fractures. Yeah. Evolution mm -hmm. in open fracture care may come from perioperative care. Evolution in hip fracture care may come from perioperative care. So this is just another great example uh, of doing that. Um, and yeah, I mean, from that perspective, it's great. Some are going to argue, well, you know, uh, efficacy versus pragmatism. And the pragmatism is you, you've kind of got to do things that can be applied in day-to-day -day practice. So um, usually, you know, you would say that, you know, a pragmatic trial from the get-go, meaning, you know, just use everyday practice and see if something is better than the other is, is a much easier yeah. to jump and make that leap. But I can tell you, if you show something like this that actually has benefit and you can show a demonstrable benefit in a well-controlled, valid trial, 
it behooves all of us to say, okay, how do we now make this a standard within our centers? Right. And I suspect the key here is going to be that the knowledge gap is going to be how quickly this gets into guidelines, guidelines right. for open fracture care. And part of that's going to be, you know, our own, you know, community saying, okay, this study has to be highlighted in some of these guidelines. And that question around, you know, um, perioperative use of uh, oxygen needs to be also brought in. Right. But if I, if I could ask you to expand a little bit, Bo, on the philosophical question of when is it worth the effort to do a trial that requires uh, involving other specialties to change practice? Yeah. Uh, yeah, what, yeah, 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 yeah. The extra, I mean, the extra effort involved. When, when yeah. should we do that? Yeah. And I, so I guess it always goes back to, I mean, so the simple and maybe trite answer is it always matters. You should always think about it, right? Very few questions we have are truly isolated to one subspecialty silo. I mean, it happens, right? If you have an implant A versus B, but yep. the outcomes but the outcomes may require, let's say a respiratory therapist, if you're looking at oxygen, if it may require medicine. So mm -hmm. we tend not to do that. We tend to just stay within our, our right. quote, comfort zone. So I would say that the big questions that we're going to be asking are invariably going to be questions that matter to more than just our subspecialty. So the extent to which the question drives the overall plan, this particular question by saying, you know, does the use of a perioperative tool or an innovation mm -hmm. or whatever you want to call it in this particular case lead to a better outcome? The, the question itself absolutely uh, was the starting point for, okay, we're going to have to build a strong collaborative to pull this off because this will not get done without that. So I think it begins with the idea and the question and the questions we should, I think, be thinking broader and simpler than we have before. Right. But if I hear you right, you're forecasting that increasingly yeah. we're going to be involving other specialties in, in trialing interventions that are going to change really important yes. outcomes for patients and surgeons. Yes. If we so, truly, yeah, if we truly want to make, and I mean, you know, again, people may debate this, listeners may say that that's not, you don't agree, but bigger impact is going to come from more groups getting engaged in the same problem. Complex problems rarely get solved in silos. So to right. your point, I think we have to be striving to do more of this type of work. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, that's very helpful, I think, for uh, our audience who are considering participating or leading trials like this. And uh, I would just like to say, commend again the Metric Consortium uh, uh, with, with my conflict uh, that I've been involved uh, with the DSMB. Uh, but boy, the, the output of this consortium in terms of changing practice has just been fantastic. And to Bob O'Toole, who led this particular trial, uh, congratulations, uh, Bob. So um, what do you got from OE's perspective? Yeah, you know, so staying on the oxygen theme, uh, you know, I'm going to talk about ozone and uh, a paper that ozone. came out. Ozone. Oh, so, so, so now, well, with both of these, we're in rarefied air. Rarefied air, yeah. And, and we're going to get quite radical with ozone, <laughs> pardon the pun here. But let me just, for, for those who are a little uninformed about ozone, and I've learned a little bit about it in preparation, but ozone it's, therapy. Oh, sorry, but isn't it what keeps you from selling your house sometimes? <laughs> That's true. That is true. That's true. <laughs> but they say ozone therapy can induce several biological responses, such as it activates neuroprotective systems, it improves blood circulation, uh, and oxygen delivery. Uh, in ischemic tissue, it also enhances general metabolism, 
by improving mm -hmm. oxygen delivery, upregulates cellular antioxidants, and induces a mild activation of the immune system to enhance the release of growth factors. It just sounds like it's a miracle <laughs> treatment. Why are we not using it more, Mark? But anyways, <laughs> let me get let me get to the OE original, which is original mm -hmm. content from our group, which we did our own meta-analysis. And the title of this meta-analysis was Intraarticular Injection mm -hmm. of Medical Ozone versus a, a you know, Trident staple, I guess you could say, a hyaluronic acid uh, in the treatment for knee osteoarthritis. And this was a systematic review uh, of uh, randomized controlled trials. So again, for those listening, there's actually randomized controlled trials looking at this very specific mm -hmm. problem. So five RCTs uh, were published between uh, roughly in and after around two, 2016, 555 patients or so. And these were patients diagnosed with NEOA of mild to moderate to severity. So what do you think, what, what do you think, uh, uh, Mark, but I don't think you've read this particular review. If you were to, based on that, based on that um, description of ozone did, and HA, which is again, you can, for those again listening, you can argue, but high molecular weight HA, let's say, what do you think, how do you think ozone's gonna fare? Worse, same, better? Well, yeah, you're right. I, I hadn't read this particular uh, yeah. OE original, but you know, it, from the description of the intervention, it would certainly be plausible that it could be better right. than right. hyaluronic acid. Right, and that's and that's what we kind of found. We kind of found like there's this, you know, some trials like on some outcomes. You look at a bunch of outcomes. You know, Womack and a bunch that on and a few of them, it, it definitely showed that ozone seemed to be better, and on others, it showed there was no difference. But the truth of the matter is, remember, we're comparing it not to a placebo, but an active comparator. So. At the minimum, you would say that at least it seems to have an effect um, that would be consistent with other biologically yeah. active uh, intra-articular uh, you know, therapies. But as you can imagine, different from the study we just talked about, the total of five randomized trials led to 500 patients or so. So each individual study was about 100 wow. or so patients. So mm -hmm. that is where we get into the trouble, right? So mm -hmm. taking small studies and trying to pull them, you're not going to necessarily get the, you know, the, the, the robustness. So Answer is unclear, but the fact that people are researching this area suggests we should continue this, you know, uh, and evolving uh, in this area because there certainly seems to be a reasonable biological uh, mechanism for why ozone could have some benefit for like sort of an anti-inflammatory effect as well. So wow. while we haven't got the answer, I think it was important for us to publish this negative uh, systematic review, if only to encourage others to think right. maybe bigger and also think about how we can engage um, more investigators in this area. Yeah, that, that's really the role of journals in, in many instances is to publish something that stimulates a group to do a definitive study. Uh, that's yeah. certainly uh, a role that we, we find is important at uh, JBGS. But going back to our earlier discussion, uh, you know, here's a single specialty uh, intervention, but I can't imagine the issues with injecting a gas uh, in the clinic yes. and, uh, you know, changing practice and environment, et cetera. And obviously it would be hard to blind patients. I can't imagine how you could blind the patient I, or the administrator here. Right. So you raise, you raise all the issues of doing a study like this. So mm -hmm. as much as it seems, oh, well, simply just to inject, you know, medical grade ozone, you know, yeah. oxygen, you know, uh, ozone mixture into a joint and you see what happens. It's very, very different. Now, is it possible? Sure, you could possibly blind. You'd have to put a lot of effort in. You'd have to make sure the patient really doesn't know, yeah. uh, you know, by blinding them and the investigators around. The, the individual theory, in theory, will not be blind, right? The, 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 yeah. 
the, the, the physician injecting will not be, it'd be hard to blind that individual given the fact that you're talking about two very different substances. Yeah. Um, but again, well, just, those, just, that's the limitation. Just, yeah. Just injecting a gas versus a liquid. I oh. think the patient would be able to totally tell. Figure, figure that out. Yeah. 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 That's going to be a difficult, maybe, well, it, possibly here, this would be uh, one of the uh, unusual instances where a placebo control, so injecting room air uh, uh, would, would be the appropriate control uh, here. Um, maybe a little harder to enroll patients for placebo sure. as, as it always is, but Absolutely. probably the way to go with this one. Um, you know, and, you know, and there always, there's always that limited fear that somehow you miss and you get into you know intravenous somehow something happens right it uh, wouldn't be, yeah. i wouldn't be there but then the risk of embolism you know getting into you know either uh, you know a vein particularly or an artery would be a bit of a risk right so people have to be very careful the knee is pretty safe in that regard yeah. Yeah. but that being said you can never say never right and right. so there is some of that risk associated with these sorts of uh, treatments and always impacts patient enrollment uh, and informed consent and etc cetera, right. etc cetera. Trials are really, really, really difficult, as you and I know very well, and it's way easier to just go to the OR and take care of a patient than it is to participate in these. So, Absolutely. It, yeah, and, and you know, it's always, um, I should say it's funny per mm -hmm. se, but you know, when, when you haven't seen a trial done in an obvious area, mm -hmm. ask yourself, when you say, why hasn't someone actually studied this? It, like we have so many, like, for example, you know, we talk about knee arthroplasty and infection, you know, uh, we say, what, this is like, we see so many patients, we could easily get it done. In theory, you're right. We should be able to do it, but it's very, very hard, right? To, yeah. to, to do studies of thousands and thousands of patients. And so I think we have to always, um, while our journal clubs sometimes, Mark, become, the, the you know, ivory towers of cynicism around, yeah, you know, right. parsing out a randomized trial of a thousand patients and all the things they did do, yeah. maybe we should flip it and first congratulate and applaud anyone who's yeah. tried it and say, listen, this is amazing. How can we learn from this? You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, again, returning to my uh, illustration of just go to the OR is, is way easier and more rewarding. So you, when you take care of a patient, you do an intervention, you know, you might have to, you and the patient might have to wait six weeks, three months to find out the result. But in some of these instances, we've waited seven years yeah. to find out the answer. And it's, it's a long haul. It's a long haul. Take a picture of yourself when you start a trial and take a picture when you finish a trial. Yeah. I used, started... have, I used to have color in my hair. Uh, I used to have hair. I used to have hair. Forget the color. I would, I would love to go back. I see young pictures of myself when I started trials with this, you know, just quaff, and I just look back, look back, and say, all every lost hair is a, a phone call, an email, a, a something that happened in that trial. So it's all good, but it's worth doing it, right? We, we, well, we keep going back. Balding by trial leadership. <laughs> yeah, hair loss. Yeah, yeah just stop doing trials. Just stop doing trials, and your hair grows back. It's all good. <laughs> all right. Well, I hope you have uh, safe travels back uh, to Hamilton. Uh, I know Hello. you're away, and uh, thanks for uh, joining in. And for me, I got to finish this before I can get into my day. So and I'm gonna, thanks I'm very gonna, much. I'm, I'm going to run for a coffee right now myself. Okay. All right. Take care, Mo. Take care.